Welcome to season two of the Six Eight Culture Podcast. We have another incredible group of guests scheduled for this upcoming season. We want this podcast to be as interactive as possible. So I want to take a moment to direct you to our updated website at 68culture.org. Here you can be in touch with us, make guest requests and suggestions, support and partner with us, and much more. Just visit 68culture.org. And now let's begin with season two of the 68 Culture Podcast. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a sermon in March of 1956 entitled, When Peace Becomes Obnoxious. Author and Lucy was the first black student at the University of Alabama. It didn't come easy. King begins his handwritten outline by recounting that, after Lucy's expulsion from the University of Alabama, many celebrated the relative quiet that followed days of rioting at the university. King condemns this calm as the type of peace that stinks in the nostrils of Almighty God. He recounts a conversation with someone who suggested the bus boycott was destroying race relations and peace in the community, and responds, Yes, it is true that if the Negro accepts his place, accepts exploitation and injustice, there will be peace, but it would be an obnoxious peace. Now let me hasten to say, that this is not a concession to or a justification for physical war. I can see no moral justification for war. I believe absolutely and positively that violence is self-defeating. War is devastating, and we know now that if we continue to use these weapons of destruction, our civilization will be plunged across the abyss of destruction. However, there is a type of war that every Christian is involved in. It's a spiritual war. It is a war of ideas. Every true Christian is a fighting pacifist. In a very profound passage, which has often been misunderstood, Jesus utters this. He says, Think not that I have come to bring peace. I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Certainly he's not saying that he comes not to bring peace in the higher sense. What he is saying is, I come not to bring this peace of escapism, this peace that fails to confront the real issues of life, the peace that makes for stagnant complacency. Then he says, I come to bring a sword, not a physical sword. Whenever I come, a conflict is precipitated between the old and the new, between justice and injustice, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. I come to declare war on evil. I come to declare war on injustice. This text is saying in substance that peace is not merely the absence of some negative force, war, tensions, confusion, but it is the presence of some positive force, justice, goodwill, the power of the kingdom of God. Stay with us as we hear from a man who hails from India, resides in Cambodia, and has devoted his life to peace building and reconciliation on a global level in today's episode of the 6-8 Culture Podcast. Welcome to the 68 Culture Podcast, an international community where we share stories of transformation and restoration from the inside out, based on justice, kindness, and humility. Come journey with us. I'm your host, Rob McKinley. 
Jesus' famous words from the Sermon on the Mount, he states, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. In another translation, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. As we heard earlier from Martin Luther King Jr., peace isn't merely the absence of conflict, but rather the presence of the positive, like justice and goodwill. Today's guest comes with exceptional credentials in peacebuilding and reconciliation, yet his humility keeps his globally transformative work out of the limelight. The faulty cracks of injustice are being healed in the wakes of restoration and redemption where he equips and trains. His work experience covers leadership training, community development, peacebuilding, and reconciliation. He conducted interfaith peace conferences in various cities in India and peace camps for youth. He has also trained peace builders in Nepal, Sri Lanka, and the Philippines. As Director of Advocacy with World Vision India, he set up the Departments for Government Relations, Justice and Peacebuilding. He holds a BA and MA in Sociology, a Bachelor's in Divinity with a major in Comparative Religions, and a Research Diploma from Oxford University UK in Interfaith Peacebuilding and Conflict Transformation. Currently, he's completing his doctoral studies in forgiveness and reconciliation and is an ordained minister with the Church of North India, an associate priest with the Diocese of Singapore, and has been living in Cambodia since 2006. Such a pleasure to welcome the wise, kind, and perennially cheery Raju Bhagwat to today's episode of the 6-8 Culture Podcast. Hello, Rob, and hello, everybody. Raju here. Thanks so much for joining us, Raju, all the way from Cambodia. You're an Indian expat residing in the urban capital of Phnom Penh. We'll hear more about your life today in a little bit, but I'd love to start with your upbringing. Can you share a bit about who Raju is, where you came from, and how you eventually wound up in Cambodia? Oh, that's a long story, Rob. Okay. Uh, <laughs> started in a small city called Pune. It's a very orthodox Hindu city. My family has a tradition of Hindu orthodox priests, and the last one was my grandfather. He definitely had hopes that I would become a priest myself, and it was a while before I decided that I did not want to be there. I was about 14 years old when my grandfather actually gave me permission to stop all the rituals of doing the daily worship of the idols and going to temples. And the reason he gave me this permission was because our discussions about God, particularly about morality and ethics, the questions that I asked about these and his answers didn't satisfy my 14-year-old mind. Mm. And he was gracious enough to say he would never force me. And I think that has become kind of foundational to the whole understanding of peace and justice. That if there is force involved, if there's manipulation involved, then it is not just and it is definitely not peaceful. Mm. That understanding of it started when I was about 14. For the next six years, all the way through finishing school and university, I considered myself an atheist, didn't believe in any particular God. I had stopped doing all the rituals, going to temples, etc. But when I started going to university, the major change that happened was Bible study group that developed around a rugby football team. 
every Sunday evening we would meet to discuss religion and it finally focused on the Bible. And during those first four years of studying the Bible every Sunday evening with a group of friends from all the seven different religions in India, that was an experience that helped me to clarify my thinking. So in the first year, we finished Gospel of Mark. The second year, we did the Gospel of John. In our third year, we went through the whole book of Acts. And in the fourth year, we started going through the book of Romans. Just before I finished university, I found the answers to two questions that I'd been asking my grandfather. The two questions that had been ringing in my head over those seven, eight years, what is good and bad? And what is God's character? And I found the answers while studying the book of Romans. The answers were there right from the beginning in the life and the person of Jesus Christ. But that came home to me in March of 1974 while finishing the book of Romans. That God is perfect and good. His character never changes. God does not force you even to love Him and to follow Him and obey Him. It's always choice. And the fact that Anything that contradicts the character of God, of Jesus Christ, is therefore sin. As simple as I can put it in terms of the answers I found. You had mentioned the environment that you were growing up in. There were plurality of religions there. Can you just expand on maybe some of the other ones? Did you find yeah. any resistance to you exploring Christianity in the region of India that you grew up in? There are seven religions, like the major religions in India, Hinduism, and then you have Islam, Christians, Sikhs, Buddhists. You have the Parsis, who are the followers of Zoroaster, the prophet. And then you have the Jains, who are the followers of the Mahavira. The Jains actually predate the Buddhists in India hmm. by about at least 300 years. And we had all of these seven religions on our rugby team. And we were a part of this discussion that used to happen every Sunday evening. Mm. So understanding faith in a pluralistic context has definitely been a part of what defines me. It's been a dialogue with young people from seven different faiths. And sometimes this dialogue became quite loud and violent. We never actually exchanged blows, but yeah, we got quite <laughs> close to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Studying the Bible wasn't an issue. I mean, just having discussions on religion and philosophy and good and bad is quite normal. Yeah. So what put you on the path that you've been on for so many years? Was there a particular point in time that facilitated such a heart for peace building or has it been shaped by a steady progression? Yeah, that question would have two answers really. One is that in spite of all the goodness that I thought I was, that wasn't inherent in me, you know, as a Hindu Brahmin, doing bad things is not the norm. Having basic integrity is the norm. So I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never done drugs. Literally never, never drunk alcohol until I started doing communion in an Anglican church. I have never copied an exams. So I've never passed a bribe, not even while I've been in Cambodia. You know, like it's all these things that you don't do is what defines your morality. At the same time, I used to get angry easily and physically violent. But the excuse was always, oh, everybody does that once in a while. And yeah, you get into fights. My personal violence, my personal anger, dealing with these has led me to be a peacemaker. And in being a peacemaker, I find my own redemption and my own healing from my anger and my violence. 
The other one is, so the trigger kind of happened in 1998. I was already a pastor then. December, Christmas Day, 1998, organized attacks by about 10 truckfuls of people happened in a small tribal district not far from Bombay. And between Christmas Day, 1998 and New Year 1999, 36 churches were destroyed, you know, attacked, destroyed, burned, and the tribal Christians chased out of the villages. So my bishop asked me to lead a team just to support some of the Christians there and to find out what happened. I'd never done anything like this until this moment. I'd been a normal church pastor, primarily doing youth work. And when I got there, I went with a team because there would be women and children and young people and older people who would be traumatized by these attacks. First village we got to, truck was surrounded by a whole group of villagers, quite aggressive, and they wouldn't let our truck go any further into the village. And they kept insisting, no, 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 there have never been Christians in this village. So we went off to the second village and it was the same experience again. The truck was surrounded by a group of villagers and they again said, no, who told you this? You've got the wrong information. There were never Christians in this village at all. We've never had Christians here. Please go away. So after the third one, I finally figured, go and wait on a track in the forest somewhere out of the third village. We might have some of the Christians coming out who were in hiding. About half an hour after we stopped the truck and waited, a couple of old men came out of the forest and started talking to us, saying that they were Christians and they were in hiding. And yes, this is what happened. So that's what we did. In some of the villages, I was able to go in, sneak in really with a couple of the local Christians. We would meet them outside the villages and then a couple of them would take me in. They refused to take the whole group in and I photographed 21 destroyed churches. And then as a group, we interviewed others. And over about three weeks, we got eyewitness accounts of what had happened. And I came back from there with this big report and all. Those days you did photographs of the film. <laughs> so you had these printed out photographs and a whole report. Right. And the question in my mind was, if violence, religious violence is a tool for political gain, is there any way that we can stop it? Can we prevent it at all? And the only answer I could find was, uh, maybe let's try interfaith peace conferences. So over the next three years, I did interfaith peace conferences in about 60 cities. These were cities that have a history of violence, of religious and ethnic violence. 66 cities across India, primarily North India. The purpose of these peace conferences was to have leaders from each of the seven different religions be on a common forum for a whole day or two and speak about a religious perspective that says we live in harmony. All of the religions teach that. We don't do violence against each other. We live in peace. We live together. And the other perspective was constitutional, where the Constitution of India guarantees religious freedom to choose your religion, to practice your religion, and to propagate your religion. Those were like three years. And over that period of these peace conferences, we set up peace committees in each of these cities. And the responsibility of these peace committees was to train people in their cities in non-violence, in harmony. So that was the entry level <laughs> into peace building, but it was primarily interfaith. Right. Sounds very much like a baptism of fire. 
as a catalyst mm -hmm. to launch you off on the path that you're on now. How did that take you to the country of Cambodia? Mm. Yeah, because I've been doing these peace conferences and then involved a lot of coordination with the Home Ministry, the government. It was the present government that is in India, the same party. I developed a lot of contacts with them. And World Vision heard about this pastor who does peace conferences. And World Vision had already been having trouble, already being a target as the largest Christian NGO. They had a couple of offices that had been petrol bombed. And there were a couple of instances of vehicles disappearing, staff being attacked, World Vision staff being attacked by pro-Hindutva people, groups, gangs. And I was contacted through my bishop saying, this is the Anglican church. And so could I be seconded to World Vision for a couple of years to set up a government relations department and a peace and justice department? My bishop urged me to go. And so I finally did end up with World Vision in 2002. A lot of the work involved the home ministry in Delhi and complaints against World Vision that had been piling up and answering those complaints in whatever ways we could and beginning training World Vision staff in peace and justice. And this was from a conflict-sensitive project designing. Now I was moving into learning all this as I went along into project designing, do no harm, local capacities for peace, conflict sensitivity, all of those aspects. It also resulted in me coming to Cambodia. I was sent to Cambodia to help with uh, peace building in Cambodia training World Vision staff primarily. The World Vision Peace Department was setting up a peace and justice network. Those were like three years of visiting Cambodia, primarily working with World Vision locally and trying to set up an interfaith network. And the result was over three years, the Lord started saying, this is where he wants me on a long term. So we came here as a family in 2006 and I've been here ever since. Mm. And my primary work has been training leaders of organizations in peace building and in justice and in mm. reconciliation. Now, when you and I, the first time we met each other in person, it was near the Tulslang Genocide Museum. I think you were residing quite close to there. I, I was I was right next to it. Yeah, yeah S21. For our listening audience who are not familiar <clears throat> with that particular place. It's a Holocaust museum that was formerly a high school that turned into a place yeah. of death and torture. It's just a horrific reminder touring through there. You will not have a dry eye and it will radically impact your life. Has living in the presence of that place been a constant reminder to you of the work that you're doing in the mm -hmm. aftermath of the civil war in Cambodia? is this whole post-conflict aspect because what you have is people living next to each other, neighbors, and history between the families would be torture, killing, rape, destruction, even community slave labor in the rice fields, all of those aspects. And the result has been this huge trust deficit across Cambodian society, which started off from that period and still is very much a part of normal life here. And one of the interesting papers on this is titled, Where Every Family is an Island. It's just the complete inability of local leaders to work with anybody else except their own family. Mm. 
So you find most organizations, most NGOs, and even most denominations that have been started in Cambodia by Christians are run by immediate family members. And that obviously creates its own issues. Besides the fact that cooperating between churches, denominations, organizations is almost impossible because you don't trust anybody else. You had mentioned that you were working for World Vision India. And I remember when I was working for World Vision Canada, there was an incredible man from India who came to speak and his name was Jayakumar Christian. He was the CEO and National Director of World Vision India. And I recall that you had mentioned that you had worked alongside and under him. Can you share a little bit about what that was like and the type of work that you were seeking to do? Yeah, in terms of personal interaction, very little, except in the management meetings that we had. Just the fact that I was setting up these departments and he gave me complete freedom to, okay, we don't have a clue, please go ahead and do it. It was a learning experience for all of us. So setting up a government relations department, setting up a peace and justice department, and again, developing a whole national strategy for that. And it was exciting, it was hard, and it was a huge learning curve definitely for me. And it was facilitated because he said, just go ahead and do it. Those That's were great. exciting years. It was just, it was short. It was four and a half years. It sounds very much like a mosaic style of leadership, which is near and dear to my heart in the sense of how powerful and transformative it can be. Mm-hmm. We're listening to Raju Bhagwat, an international thought leader in peace building and reconciliation. Let's resume our talk as he shares practical insights on leadership training, community development, peace building, and reconciliation. So Raju, your work covers four main pillars from what your profile says, leadership training, community development, peace building, and reconciliation. So Mm -hmm. if we can touch on all four of these, and we'll start off with leadership training. Can you share a little bit about how this is manifest in your work? Ever since I came, the focus has always been working with the CEOs. So it could be the CEO of a denomination. There are 18 major registered church denominations here. They don't allow any more than that. It involved working with CEOs of Christian organizations and CEOs of Christian NGOs. And these would all be Cambodians only. I didn't work with any expats. Mm -hmm. Still focus only on working primarily with Cambodian leaders. And the idea there has been two. In leadership training, it involves fostering unity between the leaders themselves. Through that, to start with trust. First, you foster the trust through developing safe spaces for working together. As that trust develops, then you start doing cross-boundary trainings, meaning like three, four, five different organizations, denominations working together in a particular province. And the leaders would model this cooperation and relational dynamics themselves by being trainers and being trainers who are mutually submissive to each other. And over a period of three, four, five days, their staff see this. And interestingly, like one of the comments from the staff right in the beginning, in the first year itself was, seeing our leaders being friends together has now given us staff to be friends Hmm. together across these organizational, denominational boundaries. It's powerful. Yeah. When leaders model it, I keep in mind, like we are talking about a communist background. And so if the leader doesn't do it, you don't do it. 
that's it. If he does it, you have the permission to do it. That language is very typically communist, yeah. So that was one aspect. And the other one was personal reconciliation, forgiveness and reconciliation within the Christian leaders themselves. But that took, before the first one happened, it was like four years of building these communities of trust and training teams that worked cross-boundary. Another pillar of what your work is focusing on is community development. Now, how is that best expressed in your work? Two of the words that are probably most misused, though they are used very often, is the word sustainability. And one of the things that you keep seeing is local rural groups, churches, organizations, you know, communities mm-hmm. that depend on an outside resource person for their learning and their development. The truth is, as long as a local group depends on an outside resource person, that group will never be sustainable. And so how do you make this? How do you bring about this sustainability? And so the obvious answer is each of these communities becomes self-learning, becomes a learning community. And how do you do that in a church, in a church, a village church group? How do you do that in a small community in terms of its own development? The other misused word is training. So what I discovered was training usually meant Someone comes in with a manual about 250 pages and then tries to complete that manual in five days, usually like Monday to Friday. Actually, the first time I came to Cambodia, I figured out that probably the kind of pace that I do training in India, I would probably need to do half as much in twice the time in Cambodia. Yeah. Simply because the education foundations are not in place even now. Right. All the education system was destroyed by the by the Khmer Rouge and it has never really been put back in place in the way it used to be. So there's a huge deficit in terms of just the motivation to read and learn for yourself. Almost everything, even including university, is all about copy and paste and rote memorization. So, mm. so how do you train in the true sense of the word so that people are able to reflect, communities are able to develop principles of practice from their own experience. And how do you do that in communities that don't read and write too much? That is what I focus on. Another pillar in here that we've been talking about extensively is peace building. Now it's been said that peace like charity begins at home. Is peace building more effective on a micro or a macro level or both? How do you approach this? Okay, so on a micro level, it's obviously individual based. And on a macro level, I tend to focus more again on CEOs of different organizations and mainly on senior staff of the organizations. So on the micro level, it is the recognition of violence in self. And often the understanding of violence is limited just to physical violence. Oh no, I don't don't hit anybody. But having said that, Cambodia has domestic violence, reported domestic violence, which is about 73% of the families that is pretty high but the response there is what else can i do for entertainment we don't have electricity all the people sitting around this little group in the village will laugh because everybody does and you can't hide anything in a small cambodian village everybody knows what's happening in the other family so just the understanding of violence as being limited to merely physical and expanding that to include verbal include emotional especially shaming each other. The parenting style is primarily you motivate children by shaming them, humiliating them. So just getting people to comprehend that violence is not just physical, but it's in every aspect. 
and then of course you have the structural and the systemic violence that happens across even the village level and administration onwards dealing with corruption dealing with all of those issues yeah <laughs> what would you say are the greatest impediments to peace i'll have to pedal backwards a bit for this is that okay absolutely yeah <laughs> okay interestingly enough in the bible in the old testament you have only one word actually there's two but there's one word that is primarily translated as justice and it's the word tzedaka normally it's translated as righteousness or righteous and sometimes in the context that same word in hebrew is translated into justice okay you have another word mitzpa which is restorative justice but that is like what do you do to restore the damage that you've caused here but primarily it is righteousness translated as justice in the context so the opposite is interestingly enough not unrighteousness the word that is often translated as in fact mostly translated as injustice is the word hamas i mean we know that word from palestine right. but hamas simply means violence so the opposite of righteousness in the old testament is actually violence mm. so look at it another way what is justice justice is non-violence and for me that is why this peace and justice i mean they're almost like interchangeable english uses all these distinctions but obviously the hebrew language didn't have those you know when jonah this is very interesting when jonah goes preaching around the city of nineveh we don't really know what jonah actually preached okay that's not recorded but the king's response after jonah preaches for 3 days gives you an idea and what the king says is this stop the violence mm. basically injustice stop the injustice and that is where the repentance comes in yeah it's a very so, common theme previous um, guest that i had recently interviewed she is the ceo for ijm canada and mm-hmm. espouses the exact same thing violence is mm-hmm. what needs to be eradicated for poverty to be resolved yeah, and that's totally, also totally. written in the book yeah. from gary hogan called the locust effect and he focuses in on mm-hmm. the violence so very poignant that you also bring mm-hmm. that out as well For me that is community development when people stop the violence in Cambodia we use another word sometimes forcing people to do something against their will that itself is violence already and so summarizing this what i usually talk about is in terms of the law you can be spotless you know you've never broken a law mm-hmm. but are you a just person <laughs> right i can be an unjust person though i've never broken any law in cambodia you know, yeah. or in india So that kind of summarizes community development is so closely tied in with this whole idea of justice and peace like righteousness and violence. Now the dictionary defines the act of reconciliation as when former enemies agree to an amicable truce. But isn't it yeah. much more than that? Like how is it <laughs> manifest in your work? It's huge. Like I told you it took 4 years of working with CEOs. Cambodian CEOs before the first reconciliation happened. But in its non-violent form, you just work in your silos without relationships with other people. And you think you have peace because you're not interacting with anybody who's outside your organization or your church. But when you start this cross-boundary working together, that's when the sparks start to fly. And that's where you see you see signs, you see symptoms of this lack of trust. So building that foundation of trust the trust deficit that exists in post-conflict societies is foundational. Once you've got that, you break this whole cycle of revenge, 
because the revenge may not be physical now, but it's like you're gossiping. There are snide remarks about each other made in meetings. All of those things start stopping. Once these sparks and these poking each other start reducing, you have this atmosphere. You have an environment where you can at least begin working together. Once that starts, then the trust starts building. Only after that, you come to the space of one is willing to forgive another. Forgiveness does not require two people. Forgiveness is an individual heart, right. setting your own heart right. Yeah. So sometimes when two leaders are in conflict, you might have one who comes to the space of, I forgive the other person. But reconciliation will not begin until the other person also starts and comes to this place of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And only when that has happened, then they both can start walking this path of reconciliation. Definition kind of gives you the idea that it's like an instantaneous thing, but it's not. Reconciliation is rebuilding trust and it will take years before it happens. There's no end to it, if you want to put it that way. We all grow on this whole path of reconciliation. We grow in relationship with each other. And I think we grow in our own healing as we walk this path of reconciliation. So it takes years. It's not something that happens overnight. And we have some leaders who began the reconciliation process like 10 years ago, who still meet regularly and still say, yes, we are working on our reconciliation. And they're able to demonstrate the fact that they've forgiven each other by the fact that they work together and meet together and regularly minister together and demonstrate the mutual submission. It is a long path. It is, and a very powerful one, though, as well, Mm -hmm. as you were previously alluding, when the leaders are forming and showing the forgiveness and reconciliation, then the people within their organizations are doing as such. You're in the process, one of the few people in this world that is completing their doctoral studies in forgiveness and reconciliation. <laughs> That's a compliment, Rajin. So, so, yeah, but it's also one of these things I've been struggling with for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, your dissertation is on reconciliation between Christian CEOs in honor and mm-hmm. cultures. That's huge where such a significant percentage of people on this earth live in Mm -hmm. honor and shame cultures. So could you first define such cultures and maybe what it is that you do in this regard? You've touched on it, but maybe some other situations that you do within this. You want me to summarize my dissertation? Okay. I I still haven't done it myself. I still have to submit it. So honor-shame cultures, Honor takes precedence over right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Saving your honor becomes the only priority. And you will give up your righteousness. You will give up your right and wrong understanding to make sure that your honor is maintained. Honor and shame are public community concepts rather than individual. So the shame applies not just to this one individual, but to the whole community, the whole family, the whole organization. And you would protect your honor by telling lies, by giving bribes, by buying a position. You gain honor. And it's perfectly okay to do it without demonstrating any biblical ethics. Shame is when someone catches you doing it and it publicly exposes this. That's where you you get dishonored. Mm. But because everybody's doing it, you don't expose the other. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in this context, if leaders have even more weightage, give more weightage to the honor and shame aspects. Right. Because the higher you go up in leadership, the more honor you have to lose and the greater the shame. So leaders in shame and honor contexts will not admit to even being sick or unwell because that's a sign of weakness. So how would you ever admit to being wrong? Hey, I have been wrong. Please forgive me. You do not do that in honor shame culture. Leaders especially will lose huge face. Cut off your own nose. You throw away your own face if you say you've done something wrong. So leaders do not admit to this publicly. It's like dishonorable. It's it's shameful to admit to having made a mistake. To admit to having doing wrong. So if you're never going to say you were wrong, how can you ever be reconciled? That was the question that I've been struggling with. Mm. I have a few answers which I've been trying to write out. So, like we earlier said, forgiveness is where it starts, but it takes a long time to get to this forgiveness. At least one person forgives. Yeah. And a lot of it has been one-on-one coaching, one-on-one mentoring of leaders who are ready for forgiveness or to forgive the other. And then once they've forgiven the other person, I would continue coaching them on how do you approach the other person the other leader and most of it is one on one coaching because it's two things one is its skills and the other one is you're overcoming a whole world view that completely wants to bypass this and just work on oh we live together even if you're enemies that's fine but at least there's no overt conflict going on so the change of world view is related to one particular dynamic that I've been working on Paul talks about this if i would boast i would rather boast in my weaknesses it took me about 2 years to figure this out after i came to cambodia to switch the dynamics someone would have to start talking about weaknesses sharing their personal weaknesses and obviously by default that was me <laughs> so the first time i shared my struggle about being a good father all the leaders they giggled and they and they laughed and i was quite offended because i was like hey here i'm sharing my heart and you guys are laughing then i figured out that they are just embarrassed to see this expert outside expert shaming himself and they didn't know how to react to that so mm. they just giggled and laughed yeah yeah but it had to be done consistently finally one by one they all come on board in the first two years the stories were all about you know here we have done this incredible ministry and now we are going to go ahead so thank god for that praise god for that and now please pray for this other incredible plan we have it will be work out well and we will save the world so in my first two years these were the stories i was hearing nobody asked for prayer for struggles nobody said it was difficult and finally dawned on me two years later ki this was one aspect that needed to be dealt with so two years two and a half three years down the line we started sharing about hey this is where i struggle my struggles as a parent my struggles in ministry my struggles with my staff my struggles with other leaders so it took about 2 years of sharing our struggles and our weaknesses before the first reconciliation actually happened and i'm convinced that this change of world view is breaking out of the small of false boasting that brings you honor to honest sharing about struggle that breaks down this shame barrier and then brings you to this place of saying i'm sorry i've been wrong and i want to be reconciled mm, very well put 
and it runs very far it runs very deep as well when we step mm -hmm. out into the governments of some cultures now without naming mm -hmm. this particular country or ngo mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. some countries i remember one who was actually kicked out of this country because there was the shame that the mm -hmm. young girls in this country were being trafficked yet when it was discovered that the majority of these girls belonged to a different nationality they allowed this mm -hmm. ngo to be back into this country and do the work so yeah. very much what you said there's a very big Absolutely. difference between legal and just yeah <laughs> totally yeah and the dynamics of shame and honor are i mean you know we talk about this the 1040 window right yeah. now it's you know but basically the unreached 1040 window is shame and honor cultures and as long as uh, getting the gospel into these countries is script oriented and even developing scripts to share the gospel in honor shame cultures anything script based is going to have limited impact and these honor shame cultures need worldview changes not just you know intellectual assents to you know tick box believe in jesus tick box you know i seek forgiveness from jesus tick right. box jesus died for me in the context i work in some of the leaders have ticked these boxes 20 25 years ago but that hasn't resulted in the worldview change at all so there's intellectual understanding which hasn't translated into cultural and worldview change yeah, and right here in Canada, there's a huge need for forgiveness and reconciliation within our mm -hmm. First Nations brothers and sisters. It says here that you've also done peace building, training and work in Nepal, Sri Lanka and the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe touch on a couple of these regions or some other ones? And is it a similar issue as it is, say, there in Cambodia or in India? And if not, what would the differences be? In terms of differences, no. I think I would still use this foundational aspect of violence and righteousness, justice and non-violence as foundational, no matter which society we move into. And the reason is very simple, because what I see is, and this includes established Christian organizations, Christian nations, cultures, what you find is this increasing dynamics that comes primarily from the business world, where boasting is becoming the norm. Now, this is very sensitive, but I think I need to say it. So newsletters from Christian organizations, it's very hard not to raise funds without success stories. I think some of our success stories, even in our newsletters, are posting and they kind of project something that is more than what is the ground reality. Mm -hmm. That dynamic is growing in first world countries that have a kind of historical or a Judeo-Christian social fabric and they understand guilt and righteousness much better. But because of this increase in telling success stories, I think that is becoming more and more of a guilt and righteousness culture where posting becomes the norm. And without you boasting, you will not be able to raise funds. <laughs> it's a kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah, it's very transactional. And mm -hmm. there's a profession within most NGOs that mm -hmm. they strive not to be transactional. But it's mm -hmm. the whole, I'm giving you something, so I expect a return on my investment. Mm -hmm. So there That's can right. be transparency, but we can't have immediacy in our expectations. That's this right. is a very long-term approach. And I think the West has yes. a long way to come in learning and understanding that. The long-term approach, again, is crucial because most funding cycles are like three years, two years, three years, sometimes even one year. 
and when an organization or an NGO or a church is pushed to deliver results in three years, I think we've already lost the part because changing worldviews and hearts is not a three-year project. It's a lifetime project. That's right. Raju, if someone wants to pursue an education in forgiveness and reconciliation, where can they go? How did you discover the seminary that you're attending or the Mm -hmm. university that you're attending? And have any recommendations for anyone who are looking to pursuing a similar type of path? You've already noted that there's not too many. There are some secular universities that do offer you peace studies and even conflict transformation. They even might offer you a PhD. But theology, Christian peace studies, is sadly missing. Across India, there's probably only two or three that offer you peace as a subject only. But the Asia Theological Association does this peace studies program, and now they're recruiting the fifth cohort. So if you look at the Asia Theological Association website or the Asia Graduate School of Theology, you will find the peace studies doctor program. And it is one of the few, I think there's only three or four across the world, where you find a PhD in a theology of peace. And you're given freedom to develop a theology of peace within your own context. Eastern Mennonite University in the US has been, I mean, historically, they've been in the forefront of peacemaking and conflict transformation. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap things up? You work, you study, you learn, you write. And part of it has been my own growing, my own walking away from my violence towards me becoming a more just person. I mean, I think if I don't do this work, I will not grow to be a just person the way God wants me to be. That's probably the best summary that I could make of this. Very well said, and it's very appropriate for this podcast, which is focused on justice, kindness, and humility, starting with Mm. ourselves. It was very interesting to see your WhatsApp profile has the same scripture of Micah Mm, 6, 8, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. We didn't do humble yet, but that is a crucial dynamic in changing a shame and honor worldview and what the gospel brought into the Greco-Roman Jewish worldview of shame and honor was this whole dynamic of humility. But that's for another podcast maybe. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Ouch. Okay. <laughs> it's, it, <laughs> so the gospel came into a context where the Roman worldview was of honor, where boasting was a norm, where the Caesars themselves sent out plaques saying, hey, we've done all these incredibly great things. And boasting was a norm. And so you find a Pharisee who gives gold to the temple, having it announced all over the city of Jerusalem. You find a Pharisee who walks into the temple and then prays aloud at how great he is as a Pharisee and how thankful that he's not like that poor sinner praying at the back of a temple. That's shame and honor. Into this culture, which has completely become a part of the normal Jewish lifestyle, Jesus brings in this whole dynamic of humility and even dying for it. And then you have the apostles preaching humility, the preaching of the cross. I think that has been something that has been missing in our preaching of the gospel, if you want. The preaching of the cross, the dying to self, and that this dying is a daily affair. It's not something that happens that one time, that one minute where you gave your life to Christ. Right. And then you're like the saved 
incredibly perfect person that walks around on this earth. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Humility is a lifestyle that I struggle with every day. And that was the dynamic, I think, the preaching of the cross and the humility, that daily humility that required. And it was modeled by the early disciples that changed the Roman culture, literally in one century, a culture that looked at honor and boasting and being tough and strong as the values to aspire after. By the end of the first century, you find humility and forgiveness and gentleness and kindness as being values. It was a whole cultural change in the dynamics of the Roman Empire and the Roman culture. And it was done by the preaching of the cross and the modeling of humility and even dying for it by these Christians who were a small cult, really, that were persecuted through most of that time. Mm, yeah. I've said this before that when we commit an infraction, we want mercy. If an infraction happens against us, we want justice. Mm -hmm. But humility is the clothing that both of them wear to enable both justice and mercy to coexist with one another. Absolutely. Raju, it's been such a pleasure to have you share your journey with us, the wisdom that you've acquired along the way. And thank mm -hmm. you so much. Thanks for sharing your time with the 6-8 Culture Podcast, where we share stories of personal transformation that are making our world a more just, kind, and humble place. Join us for our next session of Impacting Stories with 6-8 Culture. This is Rob McKinley signing out with a reminder for us all to act justly, to be kind, and to walk humble.